An army marches on its stomach, as the saying famously goes, and it is certainly true that our approach to food changes between the times in which we are at peace and the times at which we are in strife. Today on As We Eat, we're going to explore that divide with reflection on the ingenuity and innovations of food in home life and within military structures. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm enjoying our slow, very slow entry into spring here in Washington State. It's uh, been pretty cool lately, but we're starting to see some sunshine, and that means new sprouts and plants and things are happening up here. How are you, and where are you? We are actually in Montana, and we are also having a very slow start to spring. We had snow about three days ago, but things are looking like maybe they're going to warm up a little bit. I took a walk with Josie the other day and uh, came across some really pretty daffodils. So I'm hoping that the daffodils are right and we're turning the corner. I love daffodils. I remember seeing them growing not for the first time, but for the first time in Ohio in college and just being like flabbergasted by how bountiful and beautiful they were I remember telling somebody and they're just growing like they haven't even been intentionally like planted anywhere and of course now I understand a little bit more about bulbs (laughs) and how that works but yeah it's those are those beautiful harbingers of spring and I'm always happy to see them yeah We've got some interesting things to talk about today. We do. And this is predicated on a kitchen table conversation hosted by the folks behind the Oxford Food Symposium, in which a point was made that the foods we experience in the times of peace are different from the foods that we experience in times of strife. And it hit me like a thunderbolt, actually. We know about things like victory gardens and ration cards, But what particularly struck me was the thought that, of course, that there are going to be major decisions to make about what to plant and when to harvest, which livestock gets fattened and and when to slaughter, and just the logistics of feeding a company of soldiers on the move and making sure that the folks at home are well taken care of. And the scale of that endeavor to me was just fascinating. So I wanted us to discover and talk about that today. When we first talked about this topic, the first thing I think about when I think of times of war specifically is the ration cards. When we were growing up, my mom would often mention her memories of rations. Not a lot of details because she would have been about six when rationing actually ended. It's always been one of those things that you've heard about. You don't think too much about until you start to research it. And what I think about when I think of ration cards is a conservation strategy in a time of crisis, which in part it was. But those cards were so much more than that. And to fully appreciate what these cards actually represent, we need to look back at the world economy of the early 20th century. 
Now, by the early 1900s, we'd seen two industrial revolutions. And we've talked about the impact of these revolutions on the growth of urban populations, which created these centers that weren't able to sustain themselves as they had previously. They weren't farming, they weren't growing, they weren't raising food that was needed to support them. And as these populations increased in developing countries, two things happened. We reduced the number of people who were what we would call today self-sufficient, and our eating habits changed significantly. As the middle class increased, the consumption of meat increased, milk products increased, cheeses increased, fats increased, and things that were not typically in a standard diet became more affordable and available. Now, both of these factors led to more reliance on outside sources. As an example, Britain relied on imports for 92% of its fat requirements, 51% of its meat requirements, 73% of its sugar requirements, and a whopping 97% of flour cereal requirements. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Now, the U.S. relied heavily on imports of rubber, coffee, sugar, commodities that we couldn't grow or couldn't grow effectively. And as a matter of fact, the first item that was rationed in the United States was tires because of the Mm -hmm. rubber. Civilians could not purchase tires. They could get them patched or have the treads replaced. There were organizations that were exempt from that. Nurses, doctors, first responders, fire and police personnel, some buses, transportation, and some tractors. But other than that, you couldn't get a new tire. Wow. During this time, the international economy was really dominated by the U.S. and Britain. And as a result, Germany and Japan felt very disadvantaged. They were both experiencing this urban growth that we've talked about and were concerned that they weren't going to be able to feed the demand or their citizens. The perspective presented in Taste of War by Lizzie Collingham is that this concern of not being able to feed the population had a big impact on Hitler's desire to partner with the Eastern Empire to make Germany self-sufficient and independent. Now, I understand that this is an oversimplification of the causes of World War II. But we don't have time to discuss all of that. And since this podcast is about food, I felt that this perspective was not only relevant, but really interesting. So we had these two world-dominating countries who were reliant on outside sources or, in the case of the United States, exporting a significant amount of agricultural commodities and food. And we had two countries who had absolutely no desire to be subordinate to the first two countries and want to make a wholesale change to the world economy. And what better way to do that than to control the food? And this is exactly what happened. Nazi Germany deliberately withheld food from what they called useless eaters. Both Germany and Japan evicted farmers from their properties and took over. Japan imposed blockades on China. German U-boats sank shipping vessels. We're just scratching the surface of what happened to the food systems within a lot of these countries during World War II. But the need to not only feed allied countries, but their own citizens saw a reorganization over agricultural industries in Canada, the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand. And whether we're at peace or war, there is a fixed reality. People need a certain number of calories to function. And if that supply dries up, 
It impacts not only the physical health of the people, but it also impacts the mental health of the people. And as Collingham put it, food was a fundamental basis for every wartime economy. Now, during the war, the caloric demands of the population increased. You had men who were recruited into the armed services, and the calories that were required for a typical day in a typical world without war for a man was around 3,000 calories. Those caloric requirements increased from 3,000 to almost 4,700 when they were fighting in tropical locations. So we had this huge demand of calories specifically for our military forces. But then you add to that the women who were leaving home, who were entering the workforce that had been abandoned by these men that had been recruited. So not only are they working in the home because that didn't go away. Now they're working. They're actually in a workforce on a daily basis as well. And you start to see swing shifts. You start to see people taking lots of different roles on. An example is you would have a man who would go to work, who would come home, work in a victory garden, dig the victory garden, tend the victory garden, and then also volunteer for the Red Cross or the Neighborhood Watch or the, what what did they call it in England? Home Guard. Home Guard, yes. So volunteering for the Home Guard. and. All of that stress now became the norm. So your normal home life and your normal daily life was impacted significantly. And this is where rationing played a big role, that and propaganda. And I want to take just a minute to talk about the original meaning of this word. I know that it has a really negative connotation today, but originally it was a neutral term that just meant disseminating information in favor of a given cause. So when I use the word I'm using it in its original form. And as I mentioned, rationing was a big part of the food conservation and dissemination program for many of the allied countries. Now, these programs were not without their own set of problems. I understand that completely. But the concept was that first and foremost, it would help to eliminate hoarding. So I thought it was about conservation, but it was really to eliminate hoarding. And we saw what hoarding can do not only to buying options, but to a greater degree, our emotional health at the onset of the 2020 event, which shall remain unnamed. The morale of a population is paramount in any crisis. Speaking of morale, another form of propaganda that was born of the war were public service initiatives helping homemakers feed their families within these new rationing parameters, as well as the shortages and the rising prices. Here in the U.S., the most prominent of these campaigns came from General Mills icon Betty Crocker. She was featured in radio shows that explained that food rationing at home helps to save lives of American servicemen. And as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. was heavily reliant on the importation of sugar. So when it was rationed in 1942, General Mills promoted Bisquick to help with homemade baked goods. Now, we talked earlier about 
and I think this was specifically about pies, how important it was to have a dessert on the dinner table for almost every dinner. So when sugar started to be rationed, these women didn't know what to do. So in comes Bisquick, which already has sugar incorporated into it. So it wasn't necessary for the homemaker to spend her sugar rations to create desserts like shortcakes, cobblers, midwinter pies, which helped to save money and the rations that they needed to use for other things. Now, shortly after sugar rations, fat was rationed. In Finding Betty Crocker, The Secret Life of America's First Lady of Food, Susan Marks notes that to launch a single ship, 96,000 pounds of mixed tallow, suet, and petroleum products were required to grease the way. Now, Betty suggested using lard or vegetable shortening, and this is why so many of my grandma's recipes call for shortening and not butter. Uh, you could use bacon drippings if you didn't have either of those. So she was really instrumental in helping these women to find alternatives, the things that they had used previously. She also supported the Starve the Garbage Can campaign by informing the homemakers of the nation that if every family wasted only one single slice of bread per week, the total would be one million loaves a year. I know that in our date labels, we talked about food waste. So it's really interesting. Betty's been talking about this since 1942, and we still can't figure this out. <laughs> She also helped homemakers extend meat with cereal additives, which were used to make dishes like emergency steaks. So you would take ground beef and you would add Wheaties to them to extend the meat that was being rationed to you because the more expensive cuts were actually only served to the military. We also started to see a new science called nutrition take hold during the Second World War. And one of Betty's most important campaigns was Your Share, how to prepare appetizing, healthful meals with foods available today. And it was a booklet that General Mills printed and distributed for free that included 52 menus, 226 recipes, and 369 wartime tips for buying food, preparing meals, planning meals, making nutritious dishes. And in the foreword of this pamphlet, Betty honored American homemakers by saying, Hail the women of America. Every American homemaker who selects food wisely, prepares it carefully, and conserves it diligently is an important link in our national war effort. At the end of the day, let us be sure we can say, I worked for freedom today. I served at least one meal from each of the seven food groups. I prepared the food I served with care. I wasted no food this day. And it was filled with patriotic recipes like service cake, victory icing, Yankee Doodle macaroni, victory pancakes. We talked about Betty Crocker in our grains episode, how she was this confidant and this non-judgmental friend in the kitchen. But during the war, Betty became an ever-present ally and a support to these homemakers in a time of real crisis. So the next time I pull my mom's ration card out that's safely tucked away in my dad's service footlocker, I won't think only of conservation. I'll think about how hoarding impacts morale. I'll think about how a country came together during a time of crisis. And I'll think of Betty Crocker, who remains one of my favorite culinary heroines. We salute you, Betty. We Always. salute you. <laughs> 
you mentioned your mom's ration card. I have this sudden, very visceral memory as a younger person cooking with my mom. We saved fat in jars and cans. It was a vestige of that tendency to save up your lard, your fat, because we never used it. It it was like this oddly leftover compulsive behavior based around this idea that households could turn in scraps of paper, bits of tin, cans of fat, old rubber baby buggy bumper (laughs) tires and things like clothing scraps. I know that there were these significant efforts in wartime to collect these things. Gosh, that's fascinating. You've actually reminded me of a little bit of a rabbit hole that I went down while I was doing my research, and that is about the Meals Ready to Eat, or MREs, because there is a huge community of people that is focused around this very particular type of packaged food that is meant to provide a distinct caloric, here, this is what you need for the day, and they'll trade them and sell them. Some people were like... Yeah, I love it because I don't even have to think about my food for the day. Everything I need calorically is here available for me. And so in a way, it kind of opens this question, too, about how we do think about food on a day to day basis, whether it's for survival. Obviously, we have to eat to survive no matter what. But also the ethics of taking supplies meant for a community that is in strife and is having massive disruptions to their food supply chain Mm -hmm. and bringing it to an open market or a black market. I I just was fascinated by looking at that. And back to the idea of how we logistically handle food in military settings brought me on this really interesting history of one of the world's most elite military corps And that is the Janissary Corps of the Ottoman Empire, who had this really fascinating relationship with the concept of food and the concept of the hearth. Can I tell you a little bit more about that? Please do. What was really fascinating to me was we recently published an article about Chef Escoffier and his Brigade de Cuisine, or how kitchens are structured. That is available on the As We Eat Journal. So if you want to go back and read a little bit more about the Kitchen Brigade and how it was structured in a military style, I really invite you to do that. So the idea of the Janissary Corps came about 500 years before Chef Auguste Escoffier deployed his famous brigade to kitchen organizational structure at the Ritz and the Savoy Hotels in the late 19th century. So so basically some background information on the Janissary Corps, and I'm not going to go overboard with this, but I thought we would appreciate some background. So in the late 15th and definitely continued to develop through the 16th and 17th and and up until about the mid 18th century, the Janissary Corps was composed largely of young boys, some as early as age nine, who were conscripted or enslaved, depending on your interpretation of history, particularly from non-Turkish households as tribute to the Sultan within the Ottoman Empire. These young men were sent to live with Turkish families to learn some religious tenets and Ottoman customs and cultures. And then when they were old enough to start military training, they moved into an extremely disciplined life as members of the Sultan's Royal Army and as his personal guard. What I find particularly curious about the Janissaries, though, is how they align the structure and rituals and overall effect of the core around the concept of the kitchen. And this has to do a little bit with semi-religious cultures and mores of the time. From ranks to uniforms, practically everything about this army is related to the power of food. 
The core as a whole was called the Osak, which means hearth or fireplace. And I may be mispronouncing it a little bit, and I apologize. In keeping with their role as members of the royal household, effectively, almost all the designations for officers were taken from the kitchen and its activities. For example, each regiment was commanded by a korbabasi, which means head of soup. Other officers had titles like askibasi, or chief cook, who was the quartermaster, and the vikilhark, or controller of expenditure. This is the person who bought food, or the units. And as the symbolic head and master of this army, the sultan himself was called Bizi Besleyan Baba, or the father who feeds us. Historians think that this correlation to the kitchen and the hearth of this concept lay in the Bektashi, which was an order of dervishes that had connections to the core. And the Bektashi has this strong relationship to the feeding of its members. It's what you do to not only to maintain and sustain life, but to create culture. And that is something that we've extensively talked about. Particularly in Women's History Month, we talked about the role of the homemaker, whether male or female, in creating this concept of a unit of a family. So we're looking at that same concept here, just expanded out by a couple of battalions of soldiers. This thread of food and its importance and the relationship between the sultan and the core, the Janissary Corps, is seen over and over again, not only in their ranks, which I've talked about, but also in their uniforms and then a very interesting piece of cookware. The Janissary uniform, and we're going to share some images of what that looks like. Their headpiece is this very striking, almost double-horned helmet, but it was adorned with a large spoon. And that was to signify that the Janissaries were part of a brotherhood of the spoon, basically a group who lived, bunked, fought, and ate together as a cohesive unit. They were taken from their homes, they were taken from anyone that they ever knew, and they formed this new unit together that was extremely well connected. Where regimental icons typically include a heroic symbol like an eagle or a bear or a lion to signify the strength and ferocity of the represented animal, something that we've talked about extensively in the Super Bowl episode, the pride of the Janissary regiments was a large bronze cauldron called a kazan. It was such a significant emblem to the regiment that the Kazan was carried in front of the regiment in a place of honor while on the march, or when encamped, positioned in front of the Korbabasi's tent as a rallying point. All important meetings were held with the cauldron present, much like a conch with the, I hold the conch, therefore I have the power to speak. It had that same gravity of symbolism. In provincial towns, when they were not at war, Janissaries were usually positioned as a police force. They kept the peace. Rations were delivered by the Kazan to those on patrol. A group of soldiers would walk around with this bronze cauldron and a big scoop, and they would deliver rations to those who couldn't make it back to the bunkhouse for dinner. It also had this really interesting history in relationship between the sultan and the Janissary forces. Symbolically, what would happen was that the regiments would report, especially in Constantinople, now Istanbul, not Constantinople. Istanbul, not Constantinople. I hope people get that reference. But the Janissary regiments would march to the sultan's palace with their kazan cauldrons, 
directly to the palace kitchens in order to receive a ceremonial ration of pilaf. And this is not the pilaf that we think of today. It is actually more stewed meat and bread. That was the ceremonial ration that was provided to the Janissaries. They were also paid a salary. And they received that ceremonial ration as a show and a symbol of loyalty. And it's symbolic of this bond between back to the idea that the father who feeds us. But there was a lot that could be read into this ceremonial process. If the regiment was slow to receive their rations, or if they kicked over the Kazan and refused the rations, it was an indication that they were extraordinarily unhappy ready to mutiny. And it was this way of kicking off negotiations because the Janissaries actually gained an immense amount of power over time. They were able to depose pretty much anyone they wanted. If they refused their ration, it was a sign that they were losing their faith in the Sultan. And if they were particularly mutinous, they could not only knock over their own Kazan and make a big show of it, but they could coerce or steal Kazans from other regiments, thereby making them complicit in mutiny or dishonor or disfavor. I really want to stress how important this Kazan was to its regiment. Serious disgrace would fall upon the unit and its officers just completely discharged if the Kazan was ever abandoned or lost, particularly in battle. You're talking about the complete loss of your community, mm -hmm. especially these young men who have been taken from their families. That would have been a pretty serious thing to have to face. No standing, no vocation, no help. Now, this Kazan is very ceremonial. Each regiment had its own cooking pots. Food was a big part of their life. That's what I was able to uncover about the Janissaries. That's really interesting. And I love the fact that what was the cauldron called? Kazan. Kazan. K-A-Z-A-N was one of the ways I found it written. Thinking back to the ration cards and how important the food was, it really didn't surprise me that this Kazan was in front of. It was the yeah. forward movement. The way that we're moving into battle is we are fed. And not only is it affecting us physically, but also emotionally. So I really loved how that kind of tied back to the ration cards and how important the food was and and yeah. is in any war time as well as time of peace. I know the Kazan's not a cast iron <laughs> vessel, <laughs> but I do remember when we talked about cast iron cooking and the idea of the technology of pots, yeah. how much they have given us an ability to cook food and cooking food maybe one of the very clear markers between humans and animals. Right. Besides the hearth, which can be portable, it is a life-sustaining vessel. Right. Something that can hold food, keep it separate from a fire, develop and provide nutrition. The army marches on its stomach. Yeah. It's so true. And we march on our stomachs. It's just neat to see these threads having persisted through centuries. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And it would make us super happy if you would share this episode with a friend and review and rate it on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And I know that Spotify has now added a review function as well. So five stars would be fabulous, please. 
And as mentioned, we also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack, and we would be honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, personal essays, dish discoveries, travel stops, and more. There are three subscription tiers, including one especially for brands. We're sure you'll find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires. Ba-da-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba